Welcome to the Hayes Worldwide Leadership Insights Podcast. In this series, I'll be talking to business leaders from across the world of work who will be sharing their expertise on how to effectively lead a business both now and in the future. I'm your host, Yvonne Smythe from Hayes, the world's largest specialist recruiter. Whether you're new to the world of work or an experienced leader, everyone is susceptible to thoughts that they are undeserving of the position and plaudits that they have worked hard to earn. Over time, these thoughts can impact heavily on not just your mindset, but also your career and life as a whole. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rita Clifton, CBE, an expert on branding and business leadership, whose career insights include positions on the boards of numerous businesses and not-for-profit organizations, strategy director at Saatchi and Saatchi, London CEO and chair of global brand consultancy Interbrand, and authorship of three books, including Love Your Imposter. Rita, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Perhaps we could start with you offering an introduction in your own words. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I'm delighted to be having this conversation and also I think about some topics that hopefully are of importance to all of us in our personal as well as our professional lives too. So, I mean, as far as uh, my career is concerned, I mean, right now I wear a few different hats in my career. I wear my non-executive director hats. I sit on the board of various businesses like John Lewis Partnership and Essential. I was on the board of Nationwide for nine years or so. Also, I'm on the board of some non-profit organizations. Uh, I'm chair of Forum for the Future, which is a global sustainability non-profit at Green Alliance. I've obviously I've been a, a trustee and fellow of WWF, Worldwide Fund for Nature. But I guess my background, you know, my my main day job, if you like, in my executive career has always been in brand strategy, customer insight. And as you say, I've worked at some quite high profile organisations in that area. But I will be honest with you and say my career has come as a complete surprise to me. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was interested in the media. I enjoyed television. I was very nosy about customers, about trends and so on. So therefore, going into the advertising and communications business was something I did from university. And I moved from client management to strategy, which is quite a pivotal thing for me. I discovered something I was really good at with strategy. And then all sorts of things then became possible where I was able to be my best self and and uh, uh, really, I guess, hit a sweet spot of some of the things that I was most interested in and also uh, was best at. And having become, having become a strategy director at Saatchi and Saatchi, I was then approached about being a chief executive at uh, Interbrand, uh, as you say. But I think what was interesting there and maybe something that's also interesting for Hayes and more broadly, is that actually it took a search firm to approach me and recognise I could be a chief executive because I had not thought about myself in that role at all. So a search consultant called me. She, she'd known me from other roles and, uh, and uh, from networking and so on, back to that maybe later. And she felt that it would really suit me to do this job. And I can't believe that I really hesitated <laughs> for some time because... 
When I became CEO, even though it's a very, very relentless role, I don't need to tell you that. I mean, just when you think you've got five minutes, someone's going to call you and and uh, feed you a problem, etc. You have to worry about the vision thing and the toilets and everything in between. But the great thing about being chief executive is that you control the culture. You can make the choices. I had 50-50 men and women on my executive team. We did personal bursary programs. You can create a culture that you feel proud of with a kind of purpose that also you feel proud of. So having become a chief executive, I did that for four or five years. Then I became chair. And then I started to do non-executive directorships and sit on boards, expand my, my portfolio. And alongside all of that, I've always done something in the green and environmental sector because, honestly, I've had a crush on David Attenborough since the age of seven. And, you know, I think I wanted to try and help save the world in some way, shape or form from that age. And so, in all seriousness, I've managed to combine my interest in green, the environment and sustainability with some of my corporate roles, too. And over the last few years, I don't need to tell you, you know, there's been a, a an absolute upswing in the interest in environmental, social and governance issues. And they've become more front and centre of any organisation strategy uh, and indeed purpose. And, you know, we've got to accelerate that and at scale, but at least it is now happening. And that's where we find ourselves now. So, you know, I'm very lucky to have done all the things that I've done. And I'm very, very keen that we get many, many more very different sorts of people running organisations because we need more human beings with all the human flaws that we've all got running organisations and really making a big difference to our common humanity. What a fantastic answer to the first question. I may just call it a day there, but I'm not going to because I've got a whole load of other questions that I want to ask you. But actually, you know, meeting your heroes, I think there's a very funny story that you give in your book, don't you, about meeting David Attenborough because um, you know, he was one of your heroes. But experience, position, plaudits and points of view galore there from, from Rita. Let me take you to the next question. And to the purpose of today's podcast, but you've given us a brilliant context for it. We're here to today to discuss imposter syndrome, which is something you explore in your book, Love Your Imposter. Would you mind giving me a brief description of the term for those who are less familiar and perhaps the different ways in which people can experience this? Well, there are many different definitions uh, of imposter syndrome. I tend to use the one uh, from Harvard Business Review, which talks about feelings of inadequacy despite evident success. Now, we've all got you know, different takes on our imposter. You know, my mind tends to be the voice that sits on my shoulder saying things like, you know, you can't really do this or you don't really deserve to be here or you should stand aside for someone who really knows what they're doing. I mean, this voice is something that crops up for about 70% of people. So what I would say to people on this call is, if you have experienced imposter syndrome, you are in very good company. Because as I say, about 70% of people experience imposter syndrome at some stage in their working lives. And you can hardly move now for celebrities talking about their own imposter syndrome. I mean, whether it's Tom Hanks, or it's Michelle Obama, or Emma Watson, Olivia Coleman, award-winning actress, talks about how she thinks is going to get fired when she goes on the set of, of new productions, etc. Just recently, Adele, 
you know, the singer was talking about her imposter syndrome and Dame Kate Bingham, who really was the engine, the, you know, behind the uh, vaccination programme. She talked about her imposter syndrome, too. So it is very, very common. And I think what's really important here is for us all to recognise it, number one, and secondly, look at it with a slightly different mindset. And the reason I think that's very important is because I read a lot about struggling with your imposter syndrome or trying to overcome your imposter. I think sometimes that is a bit of a waste of energy. Clearly, for some people, these feelings are so extreme, about 10 to 15 percent of people, these feelings are so extreme, they can become a bit debilitating and you do need professional help on that front. But the vast majority of people, they are just normal human beings. They are so common, you start going, this is not really a syndrome. This is more about being a human being. And actually, we've all got drives, we've all got reasons for developing imposter syndrome. That can be from your background, your family, your schooling, your university, or whatever. But they are drives. They provide a drive. And sometimes to recognise that drive and go, do you know, I know why you're there. And rather than struggling with it, go, thank you. Because actually, you can harness that drive and energy to improve, to stretch yourself and do more that maybe you think may have been possible. So I think sometimes imposter feelings can be a useful drive to helping us move on and to succeed. And developing that slightly different mindset, I think, is something that is very good to discuss. Thank you. And and let, let's talk about you in, in that regard. So how has imposter syndrome manifested itself in your career? Hmm. Well, I think that there have been moments, real moments that I recognise where I was thinking, you know, it's really looming large for me. So going to university, I mean, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to university. I hadn't even thought I was going to go. I very sadly lost my father when I was only 12. But fortunately, the teacher at school took me under her wing and saw or felt that I had some academic potential and helped me to be ambitious. I went to Cambridge in the end. and But of course, I arrived in Cambridge University, looked around thinking, oh my goodness, I really felt like a fish out of water and thought, you know, this is a an out-of-body experience, not really for the likes of me, if I can put it that way. But then, of course, in later life, I met Hillary Clinton, and she very kindly, uh, you know, did an endorsement for my book. But Hillary Clinton felt the same feelings of imposter when she went to Columbia University. She looked around the room and thought, all these women are much smarter than me. How am I going to do it? But she used it as a drive as well. Just like Olivia Colman used her feelings of, oh, my God, I can't do it. That's her spur to try harder and push herself uh, and to succeed. So I think university was where I really first vividly recognised it. But actually, you know, I've started new jobs. When I started new jobs or a new role, when I first you know, was made strategy director and I had a whole team of people, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, do I know much more than they do? When I became CEO, you know, then you really feel, oh, my goodness, you know, this is, am I qualified to do this? However, I really have recognised that these feelings are normal human feelings about you know, can I do it when you step into new roles? And actually, you could, if you recognise them, harness them, you can use them for more positive ends than you might think so. Mm, yes, thank you. Thank you. And 
It's important to note that this feeling can happen in, in any aspect or stage of a person's life. Are there any common triggers that listeners can look out for? Is it possible to prepare for it? Well, the triggers are often about either going for a new role or otherwise stepping in to that new role. It can also be things like, you know, making a public speech. I mean, public speaking, as we know, is one of the key fears that that people have got. And so it can often be either situations where you are having to move into that big, big stretch zone, out of your comfort zone, or it can be, of course, moving and making you know, broader life decisions about, about new roles. These can often uh, be the triggers for it. But again, in my view, if you can look at that in a more positive way, which is recognising it and go, actually, nerves are good. And actually, a lot of actors have said, uh, you know, celebrities, business leaders have said, you need to use that feeling of, can I do this? And nervousness, use your nerves and sense of insecurity, again, to do more, to practice more and to work harder and stretch yourself harder. And by the way, I'm saying all this with a view to how can we all succeed in making the very most of ourselves and do the very most we can do in our working lives. What I'm not saying is it's for everybody. You know, if anyone wants a quieter life, you know, all power to people to make those sort of choices. What I'm doing is saying we need more good human beings with normal human feelings to end up running organisations. And there are ways of harnessing your energies to enable that to happen in a way that you might not think that you can do or might not have the confidence to do. Yes, thank you. And you'll say it's not for everyone, but in your experience, are there any groups or demographics that are more likely to have these thoughts? Well, I think what's interesting here is it can be very high achieving people. And one of the reasons they're high achieving, actually, ironically, is that they had these you know, feelings of being an imposter and not being good enough and so on. However, it's a very, very common thing. And it used to be recognised or it used to be thought of as a female syndrome. Uh, and certainly in the 1970s, when the syndrome was first identified, it was because a, a psychologist had been working with group, a high achieving group of women. And of course, they found these common feelings of you know, inadequacy or you know, feeling like an imposter, etc. But actually, what happened after that was that more and more studies demonstrated that both men and women can experience imposter syndrome. They tend to experience it in slightly different ways for different reasons. Women experience it because actually in some ways society contraindicates success in professional careers and so on. For, for guys, it tends to work in the opposite way, which is there's so much expectation to succeed and to be seen to succeed and want to succeed that actually if they don't, it can have a real impact on self-confidence and also sense of self-worth, worries about imposter syndrome and so on. But women tend to be better at sharing these things. I mean, clearly there are many common characteristics and uh, and so on across this uh, this uh, phenomenon syndrome. But women tend to be better at sharing their views and feelings, which tends to be more therapeutic, and men tend to be less good at it. But the final thing I would say is what is in common across men and women is that those people who tend to underestimate themselves and underestimate what they can do tend to be the ones who achieve more. 
And those who have an overinflated view about who they are and what they can do tend to achieve less. And I think that supports this idea of imposter feelings can be harnessed in a positive way. Yes, thank you for that. Something that I'm keen to explore with you is is something you mentioned in your book around the old adage that nice guys always finish last. And in your view, why that's wrong. So would you mind just talking about why and how businesses need to tackle this? Yes, and I think I look around the world at the moment and it's easy to get a bit depressed by the whole, you know, strong man, uh, autocratic uh, leader. And even though people often talk a good game about, oh, you know, we want to create a positive culture and a cooperative culture and collaborative and we want you know good people and a nice culture, etc., Sometimes you do worry that secretly they think they're glad to have a school bully on their side and that actually somehow this is necessary. Well, I'd say a couple of things to that. Firstly, is that nastiness is becoming a very expensive trait and characteristic in company cultures. You know, bullying is a very expensive word. And not only is it an expensive word from a, from a, a, a legal point of view and from an employment law point of view but also you can't bully people senseless and get the very best out of them if people are operating in a culture of fear then they tend to do spend too much time protecting their backsides and also you know trying to avoid blame as opposed to learning and developing and moving on in a positive way and secondly of course if you don't have a positive culture uh, if you do have a culture of you know nastiness or not being nice you leak talent or frankly sometimes you can gush talent because who's going to choose to work for an organization that doesn't have a positive culture that is generally trying to help people be the most they can be and to be brilliant as opposed to create a climate of fear you know the nice guys finished last thing was said by someone in 1946 it was a uh, an american um, baseball coach and i don't think it was even accurate then it's definitely well past its sell-by date Mm. The other thing I'd say is that the world is a difficult enough place as it is. I think we've all got an imperative and a a sense of commitment that we should have, that we want to make working with other people as pleasant and as kind and as nice as it can be, not only because it's, you know, it's the right business outcome to help people be the best they can be and to retain talent, but also because, you know, it just makes the world a slightly nicer place. And frankly, we need the world to be better and nicer and kinder because we need you know, to make sure that this planet and our society does manage to make it through another few generations, to say the least. Absolutely. And you're talking a lot about things that you clearly are passionate about and that authenticity and belief is really coming through in in, in the words that that, that you're kind of sharing with us today and your insights. You advocate strongly for authenticity and honest communication. Can you explain why it is helpful for those experiencing imposter syndrome? Yes, because the reason I say this is that another piece of advice, apart from the, you know, the people saying nice guys finish last, which, as you say, I think is rubbish. The other thing that I don't like is when people say, fake it, you've got to fake it to make it. The reason I don't like that advice is because it almost encourages people to think about themselves as a third party construct, as a sort of inhuman avatar. 
And a couple of things about that. Number one is you might be able to fake it for a presentation or even for a TV series. There used to be one called faking it, where sometimes people faking it would convince judges that they were the real thing. You can do it for a TV series or a presentation or short term, but you can't fake it day in, day out in your professional or indeed in your personal life without making yourself either miserable or ill. And also think about yourself as a third party construct is the opposite of what I think is needed in business right now to enhance and improve the image of business. You know, the brand business has never been more mistrusted. And in some ways, you know, if we all assume that everyone thought the market economy was a good idea, was the best idea for running, you know, successful, happy societies, I don't think we can take that for granted anymore. But if we don't have successful businesses, we're not going to have the money to pay for schools and hospitals and civil society. So we need to do good business. And good business needs to be business that is run by people who are not afraid of their human selves being honest about the things that they think are important, being honest when it's appropriate about some of their own flaws and, in, and you know, and uh, vulnerabilities, because that can help other people recognise that these feelings are normal. And actually, if you've got, you know, if you've got these normal human, human feelings, you can make the best of yourself using those human feelings as opposed to creating some sort of you know strange construct i tried to do this you know when i was first chief executive there were certain things i thought i need to be a bit like that you know to be a chief executive that's how they are and you know you'd have your arms folded for the photos and you know sort of use kick arsey type of language and you know and be a bit macho and it wasn't me it took me a while to discuss, to really be honest with myself about the sort of leader I wanted to be and was naturally suited for, which is a much more nurturing type of leadership. I want to see people be brilliant. I mean, that's where I get a lot of my energy from, is helping people develop and move on and be more than they thought they could possibly be. If you don't want to see other people be brilliant, you don't have the right to call yourself a leader. And nurturing, by the way, is one of the most powerful forces in nature. You know, if you just look at any of those wildlife programs, let alone human beings, nurturing is incredibly powerful. And mm. that to me is the way of helping people make the most of each other, not by shouting and being the bully and, you know, making people feel afraid. Yeah, thank you. And and actually those your comments about the qualities of leadership brings me to my final question, which is one we ask of all our guests, and that is what do you think are the three qualities that make a good leader? And crucially, have these qualities changed as a result of the pandemic? Well, I'm going to answer that in a slightly different way, because uh, I know I believe that uh, some of the advice that one can give people about making the very most of themselves is about building their personal brand. Now, what I don't mean by that and building their own leadership brand what I don't mean by that, of course, is the Kardashianization of personal branding. What I mean is using some of the thinking behind them, some of the most successful and influential commercial brands and thinking about how to apply that to yourself. And there are three characteristics that apply to building a strong brand, whether it's corporate or personal for yourself. First and foremost is clarity. Clarity of what you stand for, what you're good at. 
you know, your key strengths, your purpose, your goals, short and longer term. Get clear about that, because if you're not clear about that, anything else is less effective or less efficient. So that, to my mind, is an incredibly important facet of leadership. Be clear about who you are, what you're good at, what you're aiming for. Secondly is coherence. How does that clarity of your thinking show up through everything you do about your skills, your behavior, your learnings, how you're presenting yourself uh, and communicating in the round? And for example, if you want to end up on the board, you've got to learn the language of the boardroom, which is the language of finance. And if you don't feel comfortable with that language or you're not prepared to learn it, you might not get there to the board and you might or you might not be as influential as you can be uh, when you do get there. So coherence is incredibly important. And also you've got to be a good communicator. You've got to present yourself in a way that is coherent with your goals. If you want to run a company, think about what it's going to give people, how people you get, people are going to get confidence in the way that you are going to be able to help them and how you project yourself and so on. And the third characteristic of a strong brand is actually leadership, because you are the leader of your own personal brand. You make decisions about what you're going to learn, your curiosity, your restlessness, your desire to improve yourself. You know, that is a, a fundamentally important aspect of building your own personal brand and your leadership brand. You need to take the initiative, look ahead and really think about how it is that you need to move on, develop, stretch yourself, etc. So that, I think, is the best set of, or at least a framework uh, that I've found to help people make the very most of themselves. Fantastic. Rita, thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this very, very interesting interview and podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really enjoyable talking to you. If you've enjoyed listening to this, please don't forget to listen to other episodes of the Hayes Worldwide Leadership Insights podcast and to leave us a review. If you have any questions or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us via email at socialmedia at hayes.com.